everyone else. Stay and uh, open your Bible to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be, we'll be looking there uh, as we uh, begin the, uh, our consideration of the coming of, of Christ. I wanted to take a, uh, take a morning and just focus on worship and considering Christ before the holiday season really uh, kicks off. We've got, we've got the tree up. This is like the first uh, uh, decoration of Christmas. There will be more. Um, but, uh, you know, before the, the holiday season really gets rolling, we'll, um, we'll, we will... Ooh, hot. Thank you. I'll put it up here and try to remember that you brought it. Thank you. I'll try. I'll try. Um, so we're going we're gonna to consider this morning uh, the, the end, the goal of, of, of Christmas and this season. And uh, I want to attempt just to, uh, to, to give us something to get us through the holidays. Uh, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1, says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word, and so we pray now that you would speak to us through the proclamation of your word and shape our hearts and minds. We are in the middle of our culture's preparation frenzy. Uh, We have come through the day of giving thanks, and now we are prepping for the day of giving presents. And so in the middle of of this uh, time, which for some can be incredibly lonely, a time that for some can be incredibly draining, for others incredibly distressing, we pray that we would find an anchor for our soul as we consider your son, Jesus. We have spent weeks as a church discussing how it is that we chase joy, how we find joy. And the answer uh, is simple. We get everything that would prevent us from pursuing Christ out of the way. We get all things that would enable and encourage us to pursue Christ in their proper place, and then we pursue Christ. And so we pray this morning as we consider your son and consider your goodness, Father, we pray that you would build us up, strengthen us, that we might live in a way that expresses gratitude and honor to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I uh, just prayed, we, um, we celebrated the day of giving thanks. Uh, my Thanksgiving, um, I'm, I'm thankful for my Thanksgiving. The food was good. Uh, the company was good. We spent this Thanksgiving with Nancy's family. We, we, we flip-flop on and off every year. And um, so uh, at one point during the evening, I, um, I broke out, I have this app on my phone, which is a decibel meter, and uh, I actually broke it out this morning during worship, and, uh, and, and, and if you stand right here where I stand by the speaker, we're averaging somewhere between 90 and 95 decibels, okay? Um, so if you're all the way in the back and you've never been all the way up in the front and stood on the speaker, then you, you just really don't know, but there's, there's an, an intensity to it, you know, people who are standing... Uh, 10 feet away from you, singing are much louder when they're coming out of the speakers. Well, uh, Nancy's family, when we're all on the first floor of a house, we get between 85 and 95 decibels. They are, it's like everybody's talking and shouting and moving from place to place. It is loud in there, but it is fun. 
And so it's, I'm thankful to be, I was thankful to be among, you know, this, this, this loud, crazy, fun, loving group of people. And you know what didn't come up the entire day? Politics. It was fantastic, right? It was only after almost everybody had left that somebody was like, so, and I just, I felt it. I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but I knew now we're going to, we're going to talk about politics. I wonder if, as a culture, if our Thanksgiving Day is becoming more and more of a getting fed, right? I don't know why we're still eating turkey, if this is the point, though. Getting, getting fed and getting armed to go up and go fight over electronics in stores. Have you, have you seen any of this? Thanksgiving is the beginning of the go out you know, and, and combat, you know? wage war that you might get stuff for people who you are thankful for or people who you owe something to. Uh, people are out there fighting over stuff they really don't need. I saw a picture of a guy. He was like attacking someone else with a television box. Think about this, like the logic of this. You know, you, you are defending this television. You need it. You want it. You must have it. And so you're going to hit somebody else with it? No, guaranteed. You take it out of the box, not going to work, wonder why. You know, can, you, can you get a warranty? Did anything happen to it while you're bringing it home? Well, I hit somebody with it. Um, sorry, we can't give your, your money back. People are going out and shopping and spending and preparing for this holiday. First we give thanks, then we give gifts. And to me, without a sense of Jesus' place, in the midst of all this, Thanksgiving then turns into this incredibly self-focused, materialistic, uh, keeping score. It's, it's the beginning of getting what everybody else needs. And throughout all of this, we rack up the debt and think that we can purchase the happiness of those that we love. When I consider the human condition and I look at all that we're struggling with, we look at our world problems, we look at the anger and the frustration and the pain when we identify that the problem is not just a lack of education over here or one bad person over here or when we, when we see that the problem is our own self-obsession and our own self-justification of our sin, The violence and the materialism and the purchasing and the buying, all this to me, it becomes a pantomime of our own need. Does that make sense? That, that you look at our, our culture and its expression of what is inwardly going wrong with us. We are racking up in God's eyes with every unrighteous action, with every bit of wickedness, with every false thought, with every thought that we can purchase affection or that we can crush someone else to get what we want. We are racking up a debt. This is what traditionally happens uh, to church giving in, in January is, is this is what the experts in church giving say is that uh, giving is usually good through the holidays because people feel good. But in January, all the bills start rolling in and giving takes a plummet because the debt needs to be paid off. When we consider our own world and the trouble that we are facing, we need to consider the fact that the bill will ultimately come due and someone will have to pay it off. For Christians, this is incredibly instructive. We can turn to the world in this time as, as people are stressed out and bothered and wearing themselves out and straining and we can say there is someone who can relieve the debt and take the pressure off and help because Jesus can pay it off. In the middle of a, of a holiday season that is sure to, to drain us, this is what I want to do. If you've ever, you ever um, watched coals pop out of the fire, you know, 
we, we used to run the fireplace in our house and there was this like dreaded moment where you'd hear the pop and like some random coal would fly and you're like, is that it? Is this, is this the coal that, that takes out my entire house? You know, and we'd track them down and, and stomp them out. The, the, the coal slowly loses its heat and goes out. But if you take that same coal and you put it back by the fire, right, it just, it, it re-energizes. As we face the drain and the, the strain and the pain, got to say things in triplets because we're preaching, right, of the holidays, as we get closer to Christ, we'll find our souls revived. So this morning, I want to consider Christ and the uses of his incarnation and of his sacrifice for us that we might be encouraged. I'm going to draw a little help from some dead heroes as we move along uh, to actually uh, John Flavel and Thomas Watson. Uh, I was thinking I'm going to wear my Thomas Watson t-shirt this morning, but it's a t-shirt and so I wore this, but I don't have it on underneath. That would have been good. I didn't, I didn't think of that. I'd be like, Thomas Watson. Um, let, let's, yeah, no, I didn't do it. Next time. Somebody run home and get my t-shirt. No, I'm kidding. Um, when, when Paul considers his faith and considers all that he could have taught and all that he could have encouraged the Corinthians in, this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 2.2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was what he focused his message on as he taught this troubled church that was so full of need. He came to a needy people and he told them about Jesus and his death on their behalf. In Colossians 2.3, we hear of Jesus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus. We don't need anything else. Hebrews the writer says that we're to run a race with joy. And he says, keep your eyes on Jesus, the founder of the faith. Consider his example. And then it says to consider him, consider what he endured and what he went through that we might not grow weary or faint hearted. What is it that will sustain us in each season of life? in good times and in difficult times, in the stress and strain of holidays or in those long stretches of normal routine, it's considering our Savior that will help us grow and help us meet each and every trial. The psalmist says this in Psalm 103, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. To consider and focus our attention on Jesus and all that he has done for us is the heart of remaining in a place where we feel, we know, we identify that we have been blessed. John Flavel says this that the Greek astronomer and mathematician Eudoxus said that he was so affected by the glory of the sun. He was so amazed by it that he thought, he wrote that he had been born only to behold it. John Flavel goes on and says, much more should a Christian judge himself born only to hold, to behold, sorry, and to delight in the glory of the Lord Jesus. That's the center, isn't it? Jesus speaks about the religious pursuits of people, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. People go there, and they're looking for keys and for sustenance and for answers and for wisdom and for uh, solutions to their problems. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness of me. He's the center. He's the story. The demands of life, the difficulties of faith, and the pressure of morality, these things melt like the thickest ice in the summer sun when we see the Lord Jesus. Devotion is this, according to the scriptures. 2 Peter 3, 18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowledge 
consideration of Jesus is the key. John echoes this thought, and Jesus spoke this in his high priestly prayer. This is eternal life, he says in John 17, 3, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so I'd like to consider Jesus from four different angles this morning. I'm sorry, this thing keeps squeaking. I'm just going to keep moving it around. Um, I'd like to consider Jesus from four angles. First, his purpose. Second, his humility. Third, the fact that he is crucified. And fourth, that he is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And then we will consider the uses of this. First, purpose. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In Jesus we have, an obta- we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has a purpose and a plan. In history past, in eternity past, God makes a plan to save sinners and there are two parties involved in this the first one is the father we find in the scripture references to work which is given to the son in the book of isaiah chapter 42 verses called you in righteousness i will take you by the hand and keep you i will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out prisoners from the dungeon from the prison those who sit in darkness. The Father gives this work to the second party of the covenant, and that is Christ the Son. He executes the main role, the visible role in this agreement between the two of them. Jesus speaks of this work when he comes into the world. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, he says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will. Remember, he's been given a work to do. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God sent Jesus into the world with a purpose. There are two requirements on the Son as he comes into the world. First, he's required to assume a human nature with all of our infirmities and difficulties, though he is without sin. It's the only way in which he's unlike us. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one that has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did Jesus take on flesh? Because we are flesh. And in order to rescue and to save, he must take on flesh. Second, he is required to place himself under the law to pay the penalty for sin. And when he lives the demands of the law perfectly, he will merit, he will earn eternal life for those whom the Father is calling to himself. Galatians 1.4 says that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, when God speaks to the Son, when the Father speaks to the Son and says, here, I will give you this work, and the Son says, I will receive the work, and the Father says, you need to take on human flesh, and the Son says, fine, and he says, you need to live under the law, and he says, fine, this happens in eternity past, in eternity. I don't know exactly how you have a conversation when there is no time. It just I don't, I don't know. I don't know the mysteries, but it was, this was the agreement that, that was made before time. The father promises the son that he'll deliver him from the power of death when he takes the sacrifice, when he takes, when he takes sin upon himself and he dies for his people. The father promises to deliver him from the power of death and to place him at his right hand upon the throne of glory. You do this, I will resurrect you and give you a prominent place. Psalm 16.8 says this, I have set the Lord always before me 
because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These words written and spoken by King David are predictive of what it is that Jesus would have been thinking and holding on to as he was going through his darkest, most difficult hour. God promises to raise him, and he also promises to grant him a numerous seed, promises to give him a great number of of people, of children, a, a tribe of his own. Psalm 2, 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. In eternity past, God has this purpose to save people. And the Father says, this is the work. And the Son says, I will do it. And then I believe God spoke and the world began and all that we see and know of the scriptures came to pass. The the sin of Adam, our own sins, Israel, the nation with its sacrificial system and their, their history. And that leads to a point where Jesus takes on human flesh, comes into the world and lives a perfect life. How does he do this, though? I don't know about you, but nothing irritates me more than people who are practically perfect in every way who inform everyone about that along every step of their life. You know that? You have any any friends on social media who everything constantly looks great? Like there's no hair out of place ever. They're like posting this picture at 7 in the morning and you're like, how is it possible? What time do you get up that you're able to cook all this food and make your house look perfect and and crush it at work and, and, and look perfect all the time? I don't know how people do this. I suspect that maybe they're like posting a picture of themselves like at their best moment yesterday. I don't know. This is my... Jesus, though he came into this world perfect, he also matched that up with his true character, which is humility. He was incredibly humble. And this isn't an act. This is the very character of God. When we see the Son, we see the Father. Look at what the Bible says about his humility. You think I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 2. I'm not. I'm going to read from John chapter 1, verse 10. The Bible says he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He could have made them. He could have forced them to obey or to hear or to listen. Instead, the God of heaven took on human flesh and spoke human words and lived human days and walked places and needed to prepare his own food and he had to make friends and he had to convince people through argument and all of these different things. And he met with failure at times. Now I'll read Philippians 2 where it says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was perfectly obedient to the law of God, yet he was rejected by men, taken to the cross and crucified. Job says this in Job chapter 9 as he's reacting to something that someone has said, how can a man be in the right before God? When you consider your own condition in the silence and honesty of true conviction, when you see the demands of the scriptures and the righteousness and holiness of God as displayed in the Bible, 
people are tempted either to run away, to deny the truth of the scriptures. One of those two, they, they twist things and, they, and they, they make the demands of the law less or they explain them away or they say, that can't possibly be true. Or they confront the holiness of God in all of its reality and all of its truth and they say, I cannot fix myself. Isaiah drives this point home in Isaiah 59 where he says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We are in serious trouble because of our sin. And so Job says, How can a man be right before God? The book of Hebrews answers this, though, by saying, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, what he's describing here is he's saying that all the things in the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, all the stories, the physical temple, all of that was just a symbol of when Jesus would come, he would take on human flesh, he would go to that cross. That's the real sacrifice. That's the greater sacrifice of which everything that came before was just an illusion. He goes to the cross and he enters a spiritual tent. Not one, as, as the writer of Hebrews says in verse 9, not one made with hands that is not of this creation. Jesus enters into the presence of, of God, spiritually speaking. He has died on the cross. He enters once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Jesus presents to his father, he says, you are, we are wrathful and angry at human sin because it is unrighteous. Therefore, someone must be punished for all the wrong that's ever been done. Jesus takes our place on the cross and takes that beating, that punishment for us, having never done anything wrong, never sinning, never stepping out of God's will, he enters into God's presence and he says, I suffered for them. I suffered our wrath. And he presents God with his own death. And the father says, that is good. That pays for everything. He entered by means, the scriptures say, of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer of the, the past, of the Reformation, says this, putting all of this into, into song form. He says, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. If you have ever bought something, paid for something, and got the receipt, right? The receipt is the proof that it happened. You need to, to take something back to a store, right? You know, stores are smart. They're not like, they, they don't want you to bring spoiled milk back in and be like, I just bought the, you know, they want a receipt. They want to see that you actually bought it then and there. They want to have some assurance. When we wonder, how can my sins be canceled out? How can they be taken away? We look to Jesus and we say, He paid the price for me. He lived the perfect life. And, and the benefit, what Charles Wesley is saying, is that, is that in the midst of our difficulties and struggles, when we consider the past and we say, but what about that horrible hidden sin or what about that sin that everybody knows about that causes us to shrink away from God will he really forgive me the guarantee the deed that says that I am forgiven stands before the throne of God Wesley says my name is written on his hands and then he goes on to to describe the, the process of, of forgiveness and the result of it in the next song lyric. He says, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Second Corinthians 5.19, Paul says, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against them. Think about that. Think about your own sense of guilt and your own sense of of what has gone wrong in your life and what has separated you from God. And then think, when you trust in Christ, are you receiving forgiveness? Are you understanding and appropriating forgiveness the way that the scriptures speak about it, that your sins are canceled out because of what Christ has done? that they are paid for and that you possess the very righteousness of Christ. Is that what you think about yourself? Can you say, I will arise and go to my Father because I am forgiven and I will enter his presence and know that he will be joyful to see me? Or do you think that you still got like 20 or 30 sins that haven't been taken care of? Jesus accomplishes it on our behalf. I'm amazed to read. Uh, this is a verse that just doesn't come up. I just never, I never see it anywhere. But, but when, I, when, I, when I see this, I think, I think this is good. This is what happens when we repent and trust Christ as Savior. 2 Corinthians 6, 19, sorry, 6, 17 says, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't that amazing? 1 Corinthians 3.21 then teaches us not to boast in ourselves or in the things that, that, that we've accomplished or not to boast in, in, in any other identity other than Christ. So let no one boast in men, Paul says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word, world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's, right? We've been purchased by Christ in his death on the cross. Christ now owns us. And this is good news too here. The verse finishes by saying, and Christ is God's. The Father owns Christ and Christ owns us. That means that we are owned by the Father and and, and he claims us. This is the benefit of his taking on flesh for us. This is the benefit of his his humility in receiving us and, and receiving the work assigned to him. This is the benefit of him, of him accomplishing that work for us. Listen again to what Hebrews 2.14 says. Since, therefore, the children, that's the children that God the Father is calling to himself, since they share in the flesh, since they share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When he takes on human flesh, lives a perfect life, and goes to the cross, and we put our faith in him, we are delivered from the worst. From the worst that could possibly happen to us. 1 John 3, 8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. All right, I'm going to borrow seven uses, okay, from Thomas Watson. That's the way that the Puritans preach, right? We would now say, like, and now let me let me press seven points of application home, or let me let me illustrate seven things. The, the Puritans, they were just like, okay, how do we use this, right? Seven uses. Here we go. And there were probably more. This is, there were probably 19 um, at, at some point, and only you know, seven made it into his sermon. Um, this is what he says. When we consider all of this, what use do we make of it? Use one is this. When we look at the sacrifice of Christ, when we look at his bloody sacrifice, we see the horrible nature of sin. What makes sin appear most horrible is this. That the son who would serve and who would save and who cares and forgives and shows mercy, that he is forced by our actions, not against his will, but but the solution that he must embrace is that he needs to take on human flesh and be mangled in order to pay for it. That ought to show us the horrible nature of sin. 
What a moment! Last time I was over in Zambia, I had to. Um, I had to. I was. I was privileged to. Uh, this is what happens when you say something off the cuff. You. You. You mess it up. Um, I was privileged to speak and to to give a, uh, a meditation application call to to believe after people watch the Jesus film. And uh, I like the Jesus film. Very vivid. You know, there's the moment where he Jesus sweats blood and he doesn't want any, any he asks the father to take the cup from him you know if there's any other way and, and then he goes to the cross anyway um, so I'm, I'm sharing with this crowd we, we watched in the dark and then afterwards they turned on some lights so I can barely see anything but there was this group of, um, of Europeans English, Irish uh, former citizens of Great Britain you know, or the United Kingdom or whatever they were, they were English Former English, I don't know how to describe it. Anyway. So I'm talking about Jesus sweating blood and not wanting to drink the cup. I'm like, okay, this is going to be my thing. This is how I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about drinking the cup. And I, I went through how Jesus drinks down the cup of God's wrath. And the cup comes around and there's no wrath left in it for us. And therefore, we are cleansed from guilt when we say, he drank the cup for me, Right? I hear right in the front row, young woman probably, you know, maybe not maybe has heard some things about Christianity, but but not that. She said, that's horrible. <clears throat> loud. Like loud enough that a lot of people could hear it. And and it wasn't like <gasps> there was no reaction like that. I just I went on preaching because like I can ignore screaming babies and like people moving and all that stuff. You just get get focused while you're preaching. But I thought I wanted to say to her, good for you. Like good for you, that you realize like this is not just some religious thing. This isn't something that happens in paintings, right? You know, this isn't something that we read in the Bible and it's like, oh man, that was an interesting story. You know, he took beatings and endured an incredible amount of pain and stress and physical violence. because of human sin. What does the cross, what does the sacrifice of Christ reveal to us? It reveals how heinous our sin is. It made Christ veil his glory, Watson says, and lose his blood. Second, in the sacrifice of our priest, we see God's mercy and his justice displayed. Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 22, Behold, the goodness and severity of God. The Bible says in, in Romans 4 that Jesus takes on flesh and goes to the cross so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who puts his faith in Christ. There is goodness of God in providing a sacrifice. And we hear and receive that and we say, oh, that is, that is good and we are blessed. But there is severity in that God's character is righteous and just and sin must be punished. And we might think, oh, that, that's too much of a cost. No, 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 that's, that's horrible. But think about it. Every time that you say, that's not right, or when you say, good for them, you know, like, oh, they deserve that, right? You know, oh, the guy who's like pulling up on you as you're driving to Thanksgiving, you know, he's right behind you and the high beams are on and he's like, got to get past you and you're already breaking the speed limit to be polite to people around you want to go somewhere, right? You know, you're, you're zipping along then you pull over in the right lane and they like gun and accelerate and they're going 110, you know, or something, and they're driving along the road, and you're like, that guy deserves to. Oh, look, he's getting pulled over. Yes. <laughs> Every time we do that, we affirm the severity of God. Because we demand that, that wired into the universe, there ought to be some justice. There ought to be punishment for the wrongdoers. In the sacrifice of our priest, we see God's justice displayed, but we also see his mercy. Consider this. We see the purity and the humility of Jesus, and we assume his preciousness 
to God and how much his father must love him. And then we read a verse like Romans 8.32 that says, He who did not spare his son, but instead gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God the Father would give us his son, how merciful and kind and good must he be? Use three. In Christ our priest, we see the affection of Christ to sinners. Romans 5.10 doesn't dress up our situation at all. It says this, If while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The, the cross, St. Augustine says, is a pulpit through which Christ preached his love to the world. Think about it. Not a single member of the human race escapes this condemnation that comes right here in the beginning of the verse. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Right right there, what we read is that no single person deserves the affection of God or the grace that's shown to them on the cross. Instead, Jesus sets his sights on loving a bunch of sinners a bunch of people who have offended him and and sinned against him, and he decides, I will love those sinners. This isn't just a transaction like, in order to prove that I'm good and kind, i got to save at least a million people. The rest can perish, right? No, this this is that he chooses to love them, and he's moved from heaven to the cross by love and affection. It is his willingness... His love for sinners that causes him to lay aside his place in heaven, safe within the affections of his Father, and to be crushed in order for his blood to flow that we might be healed. Isaiah 53.11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus suffered on the cross, and he doesn't regret it or turn away from it or think that it is not worth it, but instead he looks at his sweat and his blood and his pain and he sees that he has honored the righteousness and justice of his father and he has spared those whom he set his affection on. He brings redemption into the world. He brings salvation for all who will believe in him. That's use three. Use four, see the excellence of his sacrifice. The writer to the Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, 14, that Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. In the Old Testament, over and over and over again, people had to bring sacrifices for their sins. They had to come over and over with another animal. With, and, and animals, they, these were portable property, right? You know, they were, they were valuable. They, it wasn't like, oh, it's just an animal. It's, animals were life. They were labor in the fields. They were food that you could save for later, right? You know, they, there were all kinds of, of uses to them, and they would have to bring these expensive, costly animals and sacrifice them over and over for sin. But look at the death of Jesus. Hebrews 10.14 says, By one offering he has perfected forever those that are sanctified. He died once and it is paid for. All sins, past, present, and future, swept away, paid for by his death. He not only dies for our example, but in his his death, by being obedient to God's laws, he actually deserves or earns salvation for us. So often what we do in our, in our fallenness is we say, oh, I did this bad thing. Maybe if I give this money or I'm kind or I, 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 I do a good thing, it will cancel out the bad thing, right? Not a single one of our deeds ever has that kind of righteousness attached to it. 
Because we've, we've ruined it with our sin. Jesus' death, on the other half, after living a perfectly righteous life, earns salvation for us. Use number five. Watson says, let us apply the blood of Christ. All the virtue of a medicine is in the application. And then he says this, I love this. Though the medicine be made of the blood of God. Think about that, right? That is, that is something. For a medicine to have that quality. You think about some of the, the drugs that are on sale today and, and you hear that, that somebody can't get this medication. Why? Because it's $400 a pill. And you think, like, what do they put in that? That it, it, is, it, is, it is that expensive. And if it's that expensive, so many people must want it. And it must be so effective. What Watson says is, though the medicine be made of the blood of God, it will not heal unless applied by faith. Though the medicine be made of the blood of God, it will not heal unless applied by faith. Faith makes Christ's sacrifice ours. Paul says this in, in Philippians. He speaks of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Right? It's not a present under the tree in wrapping that's ours, right? You know, the present, you learn to do this when you're a kid, right? Every boy in the room probably knows this. You're like, ooh, 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 mine, mine, mine. It's got my name on it, right? But it is not yours until you sit still and act perfect just long enough for them to give you the box. You can get the wrapping paper off of it and get it out. Nowadays, kids have to fight through this bundle of wires. You know, I'm always, on, on Christmas morning, I'm always like, where are my wire clippers? I suffered through one Christmas, and I was like, never again. And now, sometimes you even need a screwdriver to get certain things out of there. Stop taking stuff out of stores. It's hard enough, you know, for us to get our toys to our children. No, we have to, we have to unwrap it, and then we get it out of the box, and then it's finally ours. There may be a million like it in the world, but this one, this is mine, right? My Star Wars action figure. <laughs> It's not gold in the mine that enriches, but gold in the hand. Faith is the open hand that receives Christ's golden merits. Faith says, I need forgiveness. I need grace, and I need it here in response to this specific action, this moment, this sin which I've committed. Father, forgive me. And the Father forgives. The Bible says that, that he forgives us all of our unrighteousness and all of our wickedness when we turn to Christ in faith. Without faith, Christ himself will not avail us. We must put our faith and trust in it. Medicine in the bottle does not heal. We need to appropriate it by faith and say, I need that. The sacrifice of Christ's blood may infinitely comfort us, Watson says. This is use number six. The blood comforts in case of guilt. When we say, oh, I've sinned against God and therefore perhaps my relationship is, is broken and I'm, I'm no longer right with him. Instead, let's see that sin laid on Christ. And the sin is now his, and righteousness is ours. If, if we have polluted ourselves with something, if we have sinned against God, if we have, have, have damaged our conscience or damaged ourselves with sin, we learn that Christ's stripes were placed on him because of our sins. And by his stripes, Isaiah 53 says, we are healed. His sacrifice is the anchor of our faith. In every single fear and every panic and every doubt that we experience, we run to him and to his merits instead of our own, and we will be comforted. Final use. Watson says this is a source of praise to God for our the, the precious sacrifice of Christ's death that we receive. Instead of 
struggling and singing songs of pain and agony. Instead, we can look at our present situation and we can say, I will bless God because of what he has done for me, because he sacrificed Christ for me. Bless the Lord, Psalm 103 says, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not any of his benefits. He forgives all my iniquity. He heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit. He crowns me with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Those are, those are lines from Psalm 103 personalized to help us understand our own sense of blessing that that Jesus has paid our debt and we are clear from any obligation clear from any rift clear from any division between us excuse me and God in closing Let me read this quote from Thomas Watson who says this, Christ gave himself a sin offering for us. Let us present ourselves to him as an offering of thanks. If a man redeems another out of debt, will he not be grateful? Listen, I don't know know, if anyone's going to come along and buy you out of your holiday shopping debt if you accumulate it. But I do know this. We all have an account We have all accumulated a debt before God, a sin debt. And God is good and righteous because we don't have the currency. We don't have the income. We can never pay it off, and he pays it off for us. So let us present Christ, Watson says, with the fruits of righteousness, which are unto the glory and praise of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray that as we enter this holiday season, in which there will be so much pressure to perform, to purchase the right things, to, to, to stretch ourselves that we can give someone that thing that they want as we have to deal sometimes with family that we don't get along with or we need to travel or you know everybody's hungry and we've been out shopping. All the different stresses that this season puts on us, may we in each and every situation, turn and look to our Savior and see that we are blessed. Father, I pray for those who struggle with their own guilt and their past, that they would look to Christ in faith and see forgiveness flow. I pray for each person who struggles deeply with desires, that they would look to Christ and they would see that they are right with you because of what he has done for them. Father, I pray for all of us that we would look to you and we would have a sense of how blessed we are and then we would act out of gratitude, not out of pressure to perform, but that we would live lives of holiness as an act of thanks and not as an attempt to earn your affection. Father, we pray that the gospel, this good news about Jesus, would set us free from all that would enslave us, because that is why you sent your Son. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.